0: The title of our sermon this morning, The Heralds of God. This is part one, Romans chapter 10, our text verses 14 through 21. So in our ongoing study now of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, we've come to a section of this letter wherein Paul's primary concern has been to explain the unbelief and apostasy of a vast majority of his Jewish countrymen. Connected to their unbelief and apostasy, or, or parallel to their unbelief and apostasy in the experience of the early church, is at the same time the broad inclusion of the Gentiles in the redemptive plans and purposes of God. Paul's Jewish countrymen are perishing in unbelief, and at the same time, Gentile unbelievers are flooding into the kingdom and filling the Lord's church. Now, Paul's explanation of that fact is clear and straightforward. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no difference between Jew and Greek in terms of their condition as sinners, so there is no distinction between them in terms of their need And so there is no distinction made between them in God's free offer of the gospel. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him, Jew, Gentile alike, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans chapter nine, verse 30 then, pursuing salvation through the gospel, calling on the name of the Lord, the Gentiles are now flooding into the kingdom. They have attained to a justifying righteousness not through works of the law, but through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Then in Romans chapter 9, verse 31, pursuing their own righteousness, which is through the law, refusing to submit themselves to the righteousness which is from God, refusing to call upon the Lord and be saved, Paul's Jewish countrymen have refused the gospel. They have rejected their Messiah, willfully, rejecting God's gift of an imputed righteousness through the person and the work of his own son, they have not attained to the righteousness which they have sought, and they have stumbled at the stumbling stone. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is no merit Listen, there is no merit in who you are or in what you have done. There is no merit in it. God is no respecter of persons. The only hope that you have, it's not that it's all gonna work out in the end, that somehow your good works are gonna outweigh your bad works. The only hope you have is that the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is credited or imputed to your account through faith alone. That word of faith, that gospel which we preach, it's not too hard for you. It's not too far off. It's not too transcendent. It's not too mysterious. You don't need to ascend into heaven to drag it down to you. You don't have to descend into the abyss to drag it up for yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ has been sent from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That word of the gospel has been brought near to you in the person and work of God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever believes upon him will never be put to shame, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's this free offer of the gospel through faith alone, in Christ alone, that reflects the grace and mercy of God. Verse 12, God is rich to all who call upon him, to any who turn to Jesus Christ in faith, they will find him ready, abundantly willing and mighty to save. And he's going to save through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. However, in light of all of that, (laughs) the Jews of Paul's day would nonetheless raise an objection to Paul's gospel. Calling on the name of the Lord, Paul, calling on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, doesn't happen in a vacuum. Calling on Christ for salvation would require sufficient knowledge in order for a person to do that. And for that sufficient knowledge, there'd have to be a public proclamation of that message. And Paul, the Jews didn't get it. We haven't been given sufficient knowledge. There isn't that sufficient revelation in the Old Testament. You've been preaching a gospel of your own making, a figment of your own imagination, Paul. There must be sufficient knowledge of this Jesus Christ whom you preach. There must be sufficient knowledge of him for a man to call upon him and be saved. The Jews said in John chapter 9, we know that God spoke through Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. We don't know who he is. He has no business with us. So the concern of our text this morning is this, is Paul then piecing together obscure testimony from the Old Testament to make his point about the gospel? Is he just proof texting from the Old Testament to make up this gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ? Or did the Jews in fact have sufficient knowledge of the gospel from the Old Testament to call upon Jesus Christ in faith and to be saved? Which is it? Did they have sufficient knowledge? In his answer to that question, Paul lays responsibility for their failure. He lays responsibility directly at the feet of the Jews. Verse 18, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, they have heard. They have heard, but they have not obeyed the gospel. Paul's main concern is the unbelief and apostasy of his Jewish countrymen. But what about you and I? How would we apply this text to ourselves this morning? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you would acknowledge that you've heard the gospel many times. If you're a believer here this morning, how many times do we need to hear it? Constantly. We always need to be hearing and learning of the gospel. We always need it, constantly need it. But maybe you're here this morning, you've acknowledged that you've heard the gospel many, many times. If you've been sitting in this church for any length of time, you hear it every single week. But your mom and dad have preached the gospel to you. Friends or family members, maybe friends or family members have preached the gospel to you. You've heard it over and over and over again, even in the preaching and teaching of this church. But as you sit here this morning, you have yet to turn. Hearing it over and over and over again, you have yet to abandon living life for yourself. You're continuing on in the course of your life as you always have, consuming the grace and mercy of God on your own lusts, living life for yourself, and you haven't turned from your sin to trust in Jesus Christ through faith. You haven't abandoned yourself to him. Some of you in that condition, you're waiting on God to do something. It's like you're waiting on lightning to strike. You're waiting for God to do a work in your heart. You're waiting for God to do something. And that's a, listen, that's a subtle form of blame shifting. God has presented the gospel to you. And the gospel is as much a proclamation of good news as it is a command. A command for sinners to turn to faith in Jesus Christ and to believe upon him for salvation. Maybe you're waiting for something. You're waiting for lightning to strike. Like the Jews. You have sufficient knowledge. You've been given sufficient knowledge from God's word about the gospel. You've heard on the pages of scripture, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ calling out to you in the gospel. And to this point, you've done nothing with it. And you have no excuse. Time and time again, In essence, the Lord has been stretching out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Turn at God's word. Turn at his reproof. Why will you die? Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. You have no excuse. Stop blaming the Lord, blaming your circumstances, and turn to Christ in faith. Embrace the gospel. Embrace forgiveness. Embrace heaven. You've been given the gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ. The Jews rejected And they continued to reject. And they blamed Paul. They blamed God. Don't do do that. Don't act as they did. In the course of our text this morning, Paul is going to demonstrate to the Jews, and by implication, he's going to demonstrate to you and I through a series of questions that you have sufficient reason to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. You have sufficient knowledge to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. It's not that God has somehow failed you. God has not failed you. It's not that God has withheld something from you. God has given you everything that you need. God has been gracious in stretching out his hands to you in the preaching of the gospel. But to Israel, he says, verse 21, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, to make his case for the free offer of the gospel, a free offer to Jews and Gentiles alike, Paul quotes the prophet Joel in chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's in connection with that statement that Paul now continues in verse 14 with reference to our objection. Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's almost as though the Jews were asking these rhetorical questions, okay? Paul means them as rhetorical, but these are raising objections. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, how are they gonna call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Again, the questions are rhetorical. Men do not call on a savior they do not trust. Men do not trust in a savior they've never heard of. And they're never going to hear about him unless somebody preaches, unless someone tells them. So Paul then begins his reasoning from the basis of faith. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? He begins his reasoning from faith. As we've discussed, a genuine, biblically defined faith is the ground upon which men call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to turn from their sins and to be saved. The point is similar to that which Paul raised in verse 10. Paul says in verse 10 that with the heart one believes unto righteousness, And then from the basis of that inward operation of faith residing in his heart, confession is then made as an outward expression of his faith to salvation. And the same principle holds true in verse 14. Again, the heart, brothers and sisters, is a way of referring to the seat of our own being, the seat of our inner being. The heart in Scripture is not merely the seat of our emotions or the seat of our feelings The heart in Scripture is understood as the seat of our beliefs, the seat of our values, the seat of our convictions. It's the seat of our conscience, our knowledge of right and wrong. The heart is the seat of our hopes, the seat of our desires, our affections, our aims, our aspirations, our imaginations, the seat of our will. The heart is the seat of our volition. And it's from that basis of inward operation, from the base of from that base of inward operation, that faith in the heart, if it's genuine, God-given faith, that faith begins to have a dramatic impact on all of those things. That faith operating in the heart begins to have an impact in the seat of our inner being. It begins to have an impact uh, on our desires, on our affections. It begins to have an impact on our aims and hopes and dreams. That genuine faith will bear fruit in your will. Genuine faith will bear fruit in your actions. It'll even bear fruit in your emotions and in your feelings, okay? Genuine faith from its base of operations in the heart of man begins to have an impact on the seat of our person, the very seat of who we are. Faith changes us. That God-given, God-authored, God-grown, God-matured faith begins to have an impact on who we are and what we do, how we think, what we believe. So the heart then, that's why John Murray it was, who described the heart as the faculty of faith, the organ of faith. The heart of a person is the base of faith's operation in the soul of man. With the heart, one believes. And then, as an outward expression of that inward reality, that person who has faith in the heart calls on Christ for salvation. That's the point behind the first question In verse 14, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. However, in verse 14, then Paul presents faith, faith in the heart of the believer as the last stage in a series of steps. Faith in the heart of the believer is the last stage, if you will, in a series of steps. Just like calling on the name of the Lord does not happen in a vacuum. Faith also does not occur in a vacuum. A genuine, biblically defined faith will be, must be, preceded by knowledge. And that points us to Paul's second question. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Faith, we said last week, that faith without confession is hypocrisy. Faith, without its outward manifestations, is hypocrisy. But confessing the Lord Jesus Christ without a genuine biblically defined faith is a lie. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. Do you see? So faith requires of necessity a content. Who are you believing in and what are you believing? Right? Faith is not a a wistful, I believe. It's not Disney faith. There's a content to our faith, right? And that content must be believed. Faith does not occur in a vacuum. Genuine, biblically divine faith will be preceded by knowledge. And in this case, the knowledge of the gospel. And that points us to Paul's second question then. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Literally, how will they believe who they have not heard? It's literally what the the Greek says there. How will they believe who they have not heard? In other words, Paul isn't speaking of simply hearing about Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking of hearing Jesus Christ himself. How will they believe whom they have not heard? Those who come to believe with a heart, those who come to believe with a heart are those who have come to hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They've heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, Paul isn't speaking there and using that language. He's not speaking of an audible, hearing an audible voice. The word that Paul uses for hearing in verse 14 doesn't only refer to oral reception. He's not only referring to something getting in through your ear gate, okay? Like hearing a sound. He's not speaking of merely oral reception. He's speaking of much more than that. If you're married, if you're married, you've been in a discussion before where your spouse says to you, you're not listening to me, right? (laughs) Y'all know what I'm talking about. You're not listening to me. You hear the sound that is coming out of her mouth, oral reception, right? But your mind is focused on your defense. So you're not hearing the words that are coming out of her mouth, right? Sort of what we're talking about here. It's not simply hearing, it's Listening. Paul, the word that Paul uses in verse 14 has to do with attentive hearing. James says, be quick to hear. Same word. Slow to speak, slow to wrath. Hearing for knowledge. Hearing for understanding. John chapter 8, verse 47. He who, he, he who is of God hears God's words. Actively listens. Actively understands and heeds God's words. And it's there in John chapter 8. That word carries the sense of understanding. It it carries the sense of understanding, believing, and then heeding God's words. The Lord tells the Pharisees there in John chapter 8 that you do not hear because you are not of God. In other words, you don't hear, you don't understand, and you don't heed because you are not of God. Notice he does not say you are not of God and therefore you do not hear. That's not how he presents that. You do not hear, you do not understand because you are not of God. They're not attentively listening. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. It's not speaking merely of oral reception, right? My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. They follow me. Well, what of those who hear his voice and do not follow? You're not listening to me, he would say. (laughs) You're not listening to me. Those who are not following are those who are not of God. They're not hearing his voice. So hearing in verse 14 is loaded with significance. It refers to listening attentively to his words. It refers to understanding his words, applying his words, apprehending his words. It recognizes the voice of the shepherd, so to speak. It's hearing his voice. And then from his words, from his words, acquiring sufficient knowledge, acquiring sufficient understanding such that you know what you are to do. It's hearing attentively listening, understanding, and doing heeding. Dr. Murray said this, the personal commitment with which faith implies is coordinate with or connected to accompanies the encounter with Jesus's own words that are contained in the message of the gospel. That personal commitment which faith implies is connected with hearing the words of Jesus Christ through the gospel. So Paul speaks of faith in the heart, okay? Okay. Of faith that is authored there through the means of hearing and understanding the very words of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Third rhetorical question in verse 14. We hear and understand the words of Christ through the testimony of, of his witnesses. We're not speaking about hearing the audible voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to hearing the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ through his messengers, through his Witnesses, Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to call on a Savior whom they don't trust? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? How are they going to believe in him when they don't know anything about him? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Christ is heard in the gospel when the gospel is proclaimed by his people. Christ is heard in the gospel when the gospel is preached by God's witnesses. The ordinary and effectual means by which sinners are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the preaching of his word by those who have been commissioned to the task. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. I want to give you an example of this. Luke chapter 10. God's ordinary means, God's usual means, his regular method of saving sinners is the preaching of his word by those who have been commissioned to preach his word. Luke 10. In Luke 10, the Lord commissions the 70 disciples to go out two by two and preach the gospel. There's a reason they go out two by two. We'll talk about that in a moment, okay? The Lord commissions 70 to go out two by two to preach the gospel. In verse one, he describes them as going out before his face. They go out quorum deo, before the face of God. They are God's representatives, as it were, God is in heaven, God sits before the the bar of his justice in the courtroom of heaven, and, and he sends out his witnesses two by two to preach the gospel. That two by two incidentally, in one sense here, comes from the Old Testament law. We'll talk about that tonight in Revelation chapter 11. From the Old Testament law, it takes two or three witnesses to settle a matter. God sends out his witnesses two by two. He describes them as going out before his face. He sends them out as witnesses. The noun witness, translated into Greek, is the word martus. Martus, the verb martureo, the content of his message is marturia. It's where we get our word martyr. What are they doing? They're witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're witnessing as martyrs, those willing to die. Brothers and sisters, the call to discipleship, The call to come and follow the Lord Jesus Christ is a call to come and die. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's a call to abandon yourself to the cause, the words, the work, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call to come and to die, to be willing to die for the cause of Christ. And many of our brothers and sisters in history have done just that. Are we to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease when they sailed on bloody seas, right? Is is that what Christianity is today? No, the call to discipleship is a call to come and die for the cause of Jesus Christ, to die to sin, to die to self. It's the word family from which we get our word martyr. So his witnesses then, what do they do? What does a martyr or martus do? He bears a testimony and this person is persecuted even killed for bearing it, for preaching it. And in that, they follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. They follow the very footsteps of our Lord. Now, there's a legal tenor to that description, a legal tenor to those words. On the basis of their testimony as his witnesses, some will hear them and some will not. And on the basis of that testimony, on the basis of their witness, a judgment is made between them. A judgment is made between those who hear and those who do not. Look at Luke 10, verse 10. He tells the 70 who go out two by two before his face. He says to them in verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we will wipe off against you a judgment is made against them. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day, in what day? In the day of God's judgment. It will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for you, for that city. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. And here's the quote from Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So God sends out his messengers, and in the context of Romans chapter 10, his messengers go out to the Jews, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. His messengers go out to the Jews. He attests to his word, the veracity of word, of his word with signs and wonders, with miracles done by their hands. He attests to his word. He attests to their witnesses true, and then he makes a judgment. So it is in Romans chapter 10. Back in Romans chapter 10, those commissioned as his witnesses, they preach his words. They don't preach their own. They don't preach their own opinions. They don't alter his words. They don't adjust his words or corrupt his words. They preach God's word. They bear the testimony of the risen Christ upon their lips as witnesses for him, and they're willing to die for it. And the words that they speak are the voice of the risen Christ to the Jews and to this lost world. Whether they hear, whether the Jews hear, whether the lost hear, or whether they do not hear, it's not up to us. It's not up to us. It's not up to those disciples. It's not up to his witnesses. That's up to the Lord. And the responsibility for hearing is laid at their feet. It's not up to the messengers. There are some who will hear. There are some who will understand. There are some who will heed. Sufficient knowledge of his word leads to faith in their heart. And from that faith, they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. But there will also be those who do not hear. At the testimony of his witnesses, there are some who will not hear, having rejected the voice of the preacher. They have actually rejected the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if they do not turn at the witness of, at the testimony of his witnesses, They are rejecting the Lord, a judgment is made against them, and they will perish in the way. And brothers and sisters, in Romans 10, Paul is speaking specifically of that witness given by the apostles, that witness given by God's eschatological prophets, here in Luke 10, the 70. But not unlike that witness attested to by God with signs and wonders, it's not unlike that witness that we brothers and sisters, witness ourselves in our own generation. We are to shine as lights in a dark place. We are to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given us a great commission. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. And we are to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every, every creature as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, as martus, those willing to die for the testimony. Some people are not willing to get up off their couch But these are willing to go for the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to die. You see, we are called as witnesses. In Revelation 11, tonight, John himself is recommissioned as a witness, as God's eschatological prophet. And on the heels of John being commissioned as God's eschatological prophet, God then, in Revelation chapter 11, describes the witness of the church. Describes the witness of the church during this age that eventuates in their martyrdom. I want you to come tonight and hear Revelation 11 about the two witnesses, okay? Back in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now Remember, the word that Paul uses for hear isn't referring simply to oral reception. You hear the testimony of witnesses every time you read your Bible. You want to hear an audible voice from God? read your Bible out loud, right? You hear the voice of, the, of the, the bridegroom every time you read your Bible. You hear the very voice of the risen Christ. This is the ordinary means through which God in his wisdom has determined to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. Through this method, to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews' a stumbling block and to the Greeks' foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is God's established pattern. This is God's established method. This is the usual or ordinary means that God employs in the spread of the gospel to the salvation of undeserving sinners like you and me, Jew or Gentile alike. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. It's here in our text then That Paul refers now to those whom God himself commissions to the work. To call upon the Lord for salvation requires a genuine justifying faith. A genuine justifying faith requires sufficient knowledge of the gospel as God's means or method of saving sinners. That knowledge is acquired through the preaching of his messengers. And lastly, Those messengers bear the approbation, they bear the approval of God as those commissioned and sent to preach the message that God has given them to preach. Verse 15, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Notice, are sent, that's passive. God is the one who sends them. As it is written, quoting Isaiah the prophet, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. As we work through the text, Paul is going to make the point that his Jewish countrymen are without excuse. Verse 18, have they not heard? Indeed, they have heard. Their sound has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. These messengers have been sent to them. They've been sent to them by God, verse 21, all day long. God says, I've stretched out my hands to this disobedient and contrary to people. They have heard the words of the prophets. More than sufficient knowledge has been given to them, has been imparted to them. They have been given the very oracles of God. They have the Old Testament in their hands. They've been given every opportunity. The voice of Christ from the testimony of the Old Testament was such that they should have turned to faith in Jesus Christ, call upon his name and be saved. Hebrews chapter four, verse two, describes the problem. The word which they heard did not profit them. They heard, there was sufficient knowledge, but the word which they heard didn't profit them. Why? Because it wasn't mixed with faith in those who heard it. They didn't respond with faith. In the words of verse 16, They have not all obeyed the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ, repentant faith in Jesus Christ. They did not obey the gospel. They did not mix what they heard with faith. They did not believe Jesus Christ. They did not take him at his word. And they kept living life for themselves. They kept pursuing a righteousness, which is through the law. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. On making his point clear to the Jewish objectors here, Paul again refers to the text of the Old Testament. It's a text that the Jews themselves would have acknowledged as authoritative. And Paul quotes now from the prophet Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 52. Hang in there with me. Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, God promises to restore Judah to himself and to deliver Judah from their captivity in Babylon. Judah is languishing in captivity. God promises to restore them. And in fulfillment of God's great promise, God promises to send messengers to announce to them his salvation, to proclaim the day of his deliverance. He promises to send them heralds. These are heralds of God who proclaim the good news. They proclaim peace. They proclaim deliverance. They proclaim salvation. These are God's heralds. And they're coming over the mountain to a captive people who are languishing in exile is described by Isaiah as beautiful, right? They're in exile. They're suffering. And to see these messengers come over the mountain would be beautiful in the sight of God's people. It's a way of describing how these messengers would be received by those who longed for it. How they'd be received... It's a way of describing the joy that would grip the heart of God's people when they saw God's messengers coming with a message of of salvation, a message of deliverance, the blessedness of good things that would follow. God had promised to save them, and they were looking for God's deliverance. That's how we should be, (laughs) brothers and sisters. When you read the Bible, when you hear the gospel, when you read of all the precious and good promises of God in his word, it should grip your heart with joy right? How blessed are the feet of those who bring those good tidings of good, those glad tidings of good things, right? It should grip our hearts with joy. Isaiah starts in verse one. Awake, awake, arouse yourself up from apathy. Rouse yourself up from slumbering in your captivity, from languishing in bondage. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Now that's a reference there in verse 1 to Exodus 28 and the garments of the priests. Garments, those garments were made for beauty and for glory. When he says, put on your beautiful garments, he's speaking of priestly garments. God plans to make them a kingdom of priests. They never lived up to that expectation of God, but God promises them, this is what you're going to be. You're going to Put on these beautiful priestly garments. You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. Put on holiness, he says. Why? For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. In other words, what makes them beautiful is their holiness. What makes them beautiful? They are separated from the filth of this world. They're separated from everything that is unclean, and they're separated, they're consecrated to God. God. God is going to separate them to himself in true holiness. And in that, they're going to be beautiful, fully, finally, forever free from anything that defiles. Two, shake yourself up off from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That dust is the dust of their shame. They're to shake it off. The bondage of their slavery would bind them no more. And they are to arise and sit down on thrones. The word refers to sitting on a throne. For thus says the Lord, verse 3, you have sold yourselves for nothing. You gave yourself away for nothing. And you shall be redeemed without money. That's certainly going to cost to redeem them. I wonder what will be the cost of their redemption. What is... God pointing to through the prophet Isaiah. Is he pointing to their temporal return from exile in Babylon? Yes. And is he pointing to something beyond their physical return from Babylon? Yes. Again, this is typology in the Bible. We've got to understand this. if We're going to understand what God is communicating to us. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? They just gave themselves away to their enemies. Those who rule over them, mock them. They make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day by their circumstances by their languishing in exile. Therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Literally, behold me, God says to them. Yahweh says to his people, behold me. In the days of the Exodus, God appointed Moses to speak for him. And then he appointed Aaron to speak for Moses. But in this day, in this day, the day that God is speaking of here, the day in which God fully, finally, forever delivers his people, the people of God will hear his voice. Literally, God's saying, beholding him. In that day, and here's our quote, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In the history of Israel, we see pictures in the Old Testament of the lone runner. right, David for example, sitting between the gates in 2 Samuel chapter 18, he lifts his eyes at the announcement of the watchman to see a runner approaching. Not a haggard, war-torn, defeated, demoralized, limping group of stragglers. What does he see? A single runner with a spring in his step Proclaiming as he comes victory, right? Glad tidings of good things. Shouting good news as he comes. Shouting peace at the end of hostilities. Good news at the absence of any bad news. (laughs) Proclaiming salvation, liberty to those who are in bondage. With the resulting news, verse 7, your God reigns. His boot on the neck of his enemies blessings poured out upon his people, the Lord on his throne, and he has visited his people as he has promised to visit them. Verse eight, your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices, they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his only arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, if you haven't figured out to this point, <laughs> the deliverance that God is promising the Babylonian exiles in Isaiah 52 is not only of their deliverance. It's typological. The Lord is going to bring back a restored remnant to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the walls. They're going to hang the gates. They're going to lay the foundation of a rebuilt temple, and they're going to fall into sin again. They're going to fall into idolatry again. They will eventually reject their Messiah in pursuit of a righteousness that they cannot attain through the law. And they're going to crucify him. And Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And the temple raised to the ground. That's eventually what's going to happen. So when Paul then sees, what Paul sees in Isaiah 52, it's not, that's not the restoration that God is promising here. That's not it. What Paul sees in Isaiah 52 is what we are to see in Isaiah 52 on this side of the cross We are to see in Isaiah 52 the full and final salvation that God will accomplish through the work of his only begotten son and that in securing a new covenant with the house of Judah. This was a restoration. Isaiah 52 speaks of a restoration that was effected at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Effected, brought about through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 speaks of his work. Behold, my servant... Shall deal prudently. Remember, we're, we're in the, we're in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And we hear about Jesus Christ in such explicit terms. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form marred more than the sons of men. It is in this manner, verse 15, that he shall sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider what paul sees in the prophecy of isaiah is a proclamation that peace a proclamation of that peace and deliverance secured through the shed blood of the lord jesus christ romans chapter 10 verse 15 how beautiful are the feet of those sent by god those who preach that gospel of peace and salvation and deliverance, those who bring those glad tidings of those good things. How beautiful are their feet, how beautiful it is to see them coming. Do you see? All those who saw those runners approaching, all those who heard those glad tidings of salvation from sin through faith in Jesus Christ should have received that message with joy in their hearts, It should have gripped them with joy and hope and faith and love and devotion. Do you see? Should have gripped them with great joy. But Israel was asleep. Israel was slumbering sluggardly in the chains of their captivity and the running of the Lord's heralds to the nation of Israel over and over and over again rising up early and sending them, the running of the Lord's heralds to the nation of Israel was met with unbelief. It was met with rejection. It was met with hostility. Such that quoting Isaiah chapter 53, verse one, Paul then refers to the unbelief of Israel in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? You're not listening to me. (laughs) That's what he would say. They've not heard him. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Look at Isaiah 53, 1. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord has been revealed to all of them in the preaching of those messengers, and they've not believed that report. 4, verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. He's going to grow up. This servant of the Lord is going to grow up before God as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. That's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful, right? How beautiful are those messages that bring those glad tidings of good things. Awake, the Lord would say. Wake up. Rouse yourself up out of your slumbering. Stir up your heart. Stir up your mind. Why do you slumber in your sin? Why do you languish in captivity? You're going to die. Judgment is coming. There is a day which God has appointed on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he's going to judge the world by the man whom he has appointed. And he has given evidence of this by raising that man from the dead. Wake yourself up. Why will you continue to live life for yourself? Why will you continue to languish in your sin? Awake, Isaiah says. Awake. Set aside the filthy garments of your captivity. Set aside the filthy rags of your bondage. Set aside the filthy garments of your sin. Put on the beautiful garments of salvation. Put on the beautiful garments of Christ's own righteousness. Put on your strength, O Zion. Stir yourself up. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Put your faith and trust in him. Take your seat in the heavenly places. Arise and sit down on your throne and rule with Christ. Sufficient knowledge has been given to you in the preaching of his word. Sufficient knowledge has been given to you by the grace of almighty God in the preaching of his gospel. Hear him and mix what you hear with faith. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Brother, sister, stir yourself up. We serve a mighty God who has given holiness and righteousness and dignity to our station. Hear Him. Live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We have been called as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We serve the King. You will judge angels. Live for Him now like we mean it, like we believe it. Amen? Amen. Call upon the name of the Lord. Live according to the station to which you have been called and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, where we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this glorious message of the gospel, our deliverance, our salvation, provided for us through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that you have given us ears to hear. We praise you and thank you by your spirit that that hearing has been mixed with faith, authored in our heart by your spirit when you caused us to be born again. We thank you, Lord, for these blessings that you've poured out upon us. Apart from you and apart from your work, we would be doomed. Help us now, Lord, to hear and to heed your word and to live worthy of the calling with which we have been called. If there's anyone here, Lord, who is unconverted, I pray they would not languish in their sin would not languish in their bondage, but that they would turn at God's word, hearing the voice of Christ and the message preached, and they would turn from their sin to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Save them, save us, Lord, from this wicked and perverse generation. To your eternal praise and glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name.